So as we say, uh, this is the word of the Lord. It's a, it's a common tradition and I think a good one to say, thanks be to God. And there's like two of you that do it, so I'm just encouraging it. Because we never told you to, so there's two of you that just have learned it from other traditions. So uh, yeah, this is, this is the word of the Lord. This is what we uh, value and to the point that this is all that we, we have to offer. And so uh, we don't pretend that, that uh, man, I'm clever enough for your time on Sunday morning. Um, but the word of God is, is value beyond all belief, as, as Rob said. And so as we read it each week, uh, we want to give it a, a special attention and focus and, and, and be grateful for it. And so indeed, this is the word of God. And this is an interesting word. Uh, and, and it was a hard word to f- sort of figure out a theme in. Uh, one commentator said it was sort of like he's doing whack-a-mole, this theological whack-a-mole. He's like, this issue is here, boom, this issue. And, and it's kind of like, what? I don't know. I don't know how to preach this, if I'm being honest, and it's been challenging. But as I, as I lean in even deeper and, and, and really wrestled with it, uh, it, actually the beauty of, it, of what Solomon is doing, I think, is actually exposing and, and um, highlighting and, and leaning into this reality that, that shows the difference between Christianity and almost every other major world religion. Because almost every other major world religion uh, functions in some way or another at its root based on Karma, based on believing that good people that do good things will get good things in their life, and bad people that do bad things will get bad things in their life. And most of us would say, okay, you know, that's, we, we, we reject that because we know it's, it's, it's connected to sort of, you know, some Eastern, you know, religion stuff, and it's not about this, for, it's not this impersonal force that, that comes back, you know, what goes around comes around or whatever. It's not that. So we would reject it from a theological standpoint, but the reality is many of us still operate out of a functional um, belief in karma. And so that's, that's actually what Solomon is diving into as he starts this passage today. Uh, he just is, is looking at life. Again, this is a philosophical book. If you're just joining us, this is uh, um, the, the teacher, which most would believe is King Solomon. And he's writing this book, this manifesto for us as a man who has had more than any of us have ever had. More money, um, more uh, pleasure, and more wisdom and more power than all of us combined could ever aspire to. And this is him saying, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. And so he's looking at things philosophically, and he's unpacking for us um, really some, some deep questions of life and deep questions of faith. And as he looks today, we see in verse 15, he starts out saying, listen, in my vain life, in my short life, if you will, my, my fleeting life, the, the, the idea of vanity is a theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and some of your translations may say meaningless. And that, that's not wrong, but I don't know that it's the fullest version because it's not that it's without meaning, but it's that it's fleeting. It's that it it's moves quickly. It, it's difficult to grasp. It's like a vapor. It's really the closest translation is, 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 is vapor-like. And you could see it. You know it's there. Maybe even feel its impact, but you can't grasp a hold of it. And, and that's, that's how Solomon has summed up life under the sun. When you're trying to make sense out of life here on earth without God in the picture, it will feel like vanity. It will feel like it's fleeting. It will feel like chasing after the wind or trying to get a hold of some smoke. It, it, it will it's, it's going to leave you empty. And that's been his theme, and, and he's coming back to it. But he's taking all these different angles and taking us down all these different roads to make sure that we realize it's not just a blanket statement. It's not just this thing, that a religious thing. No, it's, it's actually the answers that are hard-earned by his life spent trying to figure out, as he says here later, 
What's, what's, the, what's the equation? Right? We see that at the end, uh, verse 27, he says, I, I've been trying to like, find out what is the scheme of things, adding one thing to another. He, he says at the beginning, I've, I've seen it all. I've, I've seen all these things. He's trying to put it together, and, and he's trying to say, okay, what makes life make sense? Maybe if it's this person, and they, maybe, okay, maybe it's this path. Maybe, maybe living this way will, will make sense. Maybe this will, will, will put the equation together. No, it's not that one. Maybe it's this one. And, and so what he's come upon is, man, there's, there's always exceptions. There are some rules and some principles and guidelines that are good to live by, and they, they by and large, are really helpful, but there are always, always exceptions, and, it, and it's frustrating him. But one big question that he's asking right off the bat is, he's, as he says, in his fleeting life, he's seen, he's seen a lot. He's been able to observe a lot. And here's what he says. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Some of your translations might say something like, there, there are good people who die young. And then there are really evil people who die late, old age death. How many of you have seen something like this play out? Where it just doesn't make sense. I remember uh, as, as a young adult, one of my favorite people in the world, I, I was literally, I met somebody who knew this guy yesterday, and we were talking about him, and, and I've never met a guy, I've never met anybody that knew, that knew him, I think I've told you about him before, his name's Howard Stearns, not the radio host, but uh, he's amazing, and, and literally, it's like Jesus and then Howard for me, like, it is just, I don't know of anybody more genuine and, and, and good-hearted, and, and he holds a dear place, and in, in, uh, he and his wife did our premarital counseling, and we just looked up to them, we went to school with their kids, and we love them. And, and I remember, and, and so this guy, I, I, I could tell you about him all day, but, but he, he's, he's loved the Lord uh, for years. He served his church. He served his community. Anybody that you, has met him has been blessed by him. Like, you, you, you realize you know him, and they're telling a story about how he's blessed them. That's just how it goes. Everybody I've met. And, and, uh, and that's who he is. Well, he's also a marathon runner. Like, he is a, he's just a beast when it comes to, like, health and life. He eats healthy. He runs. He swims. Like, he's... Like, I don't know, he's probably pushing 70 now, and I still wouldn't challenge him to any kind of physical, like, contest. Like, he's a beast. And I remember when he got lung cancer. It's like, really? Him? He eats clean? He, he like, he exercises? He, he loves the Lord? Why him? I got this crotchety old uncle that has smoked two packs a day his whole life. He's into his 90s, grumpy as all get out, mean, right? Why not him? And this is, the, this is what Solomon is seeing. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And, and, and this is what's behind a lot of us. Like, we would reject karma from a theological standpoint, but, but when it comes down to things like this, we're tempted to say, well, you know, so-and-so got what they deserved, right? You can't play with fire too long without getting burnt. And, you know, and, and then we also have the tendency of looking at people like Howard. And, and you, you have your own story, I'm sure, of somebody. Maybe it's even you where you've had moments where, like, listen, Lord, this is not supposed to happen to me. Like, maybe this trial or this suffering got sent to the wrong address because I don't know if you know, Lord, but I've been serving you. Or maybe you felt that about somebody else. Why this person? Lord, anybody else but them. They love you. They love other people. They, they don't deserve this. And, and we, we feel this tension. And, and Solomon is saying, it, it happens. Like, there's righteous people who, who die 
being good. And then there's people who nobody, you know, everybody would vote them off the island and they live for ages and years. What, what's, what's up with that? What, what's going on with that? And, and so he, he just brings this right to the surface as a problem that we need to look in the face of as Christians. If we don't ask these hard questions, we have a shallow faith, a faith that will not actually hold us through trials. And so he wants to take us deep and, and make us ask these questions uh, so that as we go through hardship, we have a right understanding as we saw last week. And so last week we looked at suffering and how to use it and how, how the Lord wants to use it in our life, how to lean into it and be built uh, our character developed by it. Today, he's sort of going into the why. Like, why, why do these things happen? And, and, how do, and because there isn't an explanation, there isn't an equation, how do we therefore live? And so that, that's, that's the, the big question that he puts before us. And it's not just Solomon. Really, if you honestly read the scriptures, you'll see this question raised in a, in, in a hundred different stories. We, we worship a God who has written this book for us to, to know him by. And in this book, we have, as, as, as Derek read a portion of earlier in the communion introduction, we, we have a story where a man named Judas gets paid <clears throat> for betraying Jesus. And then we have a man named Job who has honored the Lord with all of his life and all that he has. And what does he get in return for that? He loses everything. And so... Right there, like just in those stories, and there's a lot of others, we see that karma is, is not an operative thing for us to rest in. It's, it's not a way of life for us to, to think it's going to go the way that good people get, you know, good people that do good things have good things happen to them, and bad people that do bad things have bad things happen to them. And it's just not true. It's simply not true. The, the, the good news of the gospel, spoiler alert, like we don't have to wait to the end to talk about this. The good news of the gospel is that we actually don't get what we deserve. Amen? The, we got, like, that Jesus got what we deserve, amen, and we got what he deserved. It's the great exchange. Martin Luther calls it on the cross. Jesus takes all of our sin and all of our shame upon himself, and he bears the weight, he bears the punishment, he bears the wrath that you and I have built up because of our sin. He takes that from us, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness, and, and that is called grace, and that is counterintuitive. That, that doesn't sit well in a world that feels like we should be able to earn stuff, in a world that feels like we should be able to control, because in reality, kind of what's behind this idea of karma is that we control our destiny. We control our life, right? It's up to us. And it's actually good news if we lean in and realize, no, it's not up to us. And we could find comfort in knowing that, well, we can't control everything. We know the one who does. And he has made a way for us to receive his peace and his comfort and, and therefore have joy in the midst of this world that is really paradoxical. It really doesn't make sense. So that's the good news of the gospel. That, that's where he wants us to go, where we make sure we rest in, is that Jesus got what we deserve and, and, and we got what only he could have earned in his righteousness. And so that is what frames up Christianity, and now he's going to lean in further and say, okay, how do we live in that? It's one thing to know that, right? Again, we, we were already rejecting karma as a theology earlier, but realizing we had some struggle with the functionality of it. And so we can accept this idea that, hey, it's about grace. It's not about what you earn, but how do we actually live that out? How do we, how do we go into our day-to-day -day and, and, and live in this tension, this paradox that the world puts before us? So let's keep going. Here's what, here's what he says, and this is, a little, this is a little challenging. This is a little confusing. This is one of those where I told you a few weeks ago, like those of you that are black and white people, you're not going to like this. 
Okay? You don't like Solomon's challenging here because it's not black and white. It, 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 you can't categorize things as easily as you would like to. And here's what he says in verse 16. He says, so be not overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Sound like something you want to tell your kids? Don't be too good. Don't get too smart. Why should you destroy yourself, he says. But he goes on to say, but be not overly wicked. and Don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay? He says, it's good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, here's the tension. When you start to realize, okay, um, you know, the world isn't going to pay me what, I, what, I've, what I've earned. It's not going to give me what I deserve. In fact, it's going to, it's going to work against me, and there's going to be times whenever people that, that just seem to have not earned it get it, and people who have earned it don't. And, and what do we do with that? When, when you realize that, you start to go, okay, how do we live in this, how do we live in this world? And it's going, to, it's going to work against us. It's going to be counterintuitive because here's the deal. Here's the, I think the reason why we struggle with, with the functional karma is because we're kind of raised... Not with karma, but with real, like, we, we teach kids based on a reward system, don't we? I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying it's what we do. Like, you think about, as, as I was thinking back into school, like, you're, you're taught, like, okay, do these things and you'll get rewarded for it, right? The first person to have their work done and, and clean up their desk gets to, what, line up first to go outside. Or in my, in my day, it was like, they get to go, you know, lining up first to go outside meant to get, I get to go to the, the, to the toy box and get the nice basketball before the other dudes did. Right? So what I got to do, I got to be quiet, I got to get my work done, and not provoke the teacher, and I get to be first in line. Right? And, and, and we teach, there's just all sorts of things. At the end of the year, the, the people that, you know, showed up to school, got their work done, got good grades, they got to go on a trip. Right? Like we frame things up this way, do good things, you, you'll get rewarded for it. Right? So, so we, we're, we're programmed to sort of think this way. So as a kid, you would start to see the injustice if the kid who has done zero work, who has talked the whole time, has made everybody else mad, gets to line up first to go out to recess. You're angry in that moment, aren't you? And the person who, who's done all the work and has helped everybody else in class doesn't get to go out at all? That doesn't make sense, does it? It's a tension. It's a challenge. And so here, here's what, like, it would be that. We're used to being programmed to, okay, do good things, you'll get rewarded for it. But then we get into life. We get into these big issues. We get into these sorts of things. Who gets the cancer diagnosis? Who loses a child? Who, um, you know, struggles with um, infertility? Who, um, who gets, you know, who gets caught? Who, who doesn't? Like these sort of bigger existential questions. And we can't make sense of it the way we could in elementary school. If, if I do this, I'll get to do that. It doesn't, doesn't check out. So, what do we do? Solomon says, don't, don't, be, don't kill yourself then trying to be overly righteous. There's a tension there, isn't there? Because the Bible tells us to pursue righteousness. The Bible tells us we should be like Jesus. We should be uh, growing in our faith, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Right? And so we've got we to be careful. We've got we to make sure a good rule of hermeneutics. Y'all know what hermeneutics are? Everybody say hermeneutics, kiddos. Hermeneutics. Fun word. You can tell your parents you learned a new word today. All right, it's the study of the Bible. It's the right study of the Bible, meaning we interpret the Bible through the Bible. So hard passages, cloudy passages, we interpret those through more clear passages. Okay, so you get a passage like this, you're like, what is, what is he saying? Well, we go, okay, well, we know that we're told to pursue righteousness. 
and to pursue a complete conformity to the image of Christ. And so he can't be saying, well, don't, 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 don't be too good. Don't be too righteous. That, that's not what he's saying. What, what he's saying is, don't look at the world in a lens of comparison and thinking, okay, whoever, whoever achieves these things will get these things. Don't try to figure out who's good and who's bad by seeing what they do by watching the rest of the world, because this is, this is how we operate. We compare ourselves. We, we have an opinion about ourselves and our identity based off of what we observe in everybody else. You feel a certain way about yourself based off of what you observe by the people that you're around. You feel a certain way about your walk with the Lord based on the people in your community group, based on the people at work, based on the people at that other church that you left that you're now better than, Right? It was a joke. I'm kidding. But we think that way. I'm more enlightened than them, right? I, I, like so, so we stop pursuing the Lord because we feel, we feel pretty good in comparison to everybody else. And so what he's trying to tell us is, listen, it doesn't work that way. The, the most righteous people that are doing all the good things that everybody sees, they're not going to be the ones that are rewarded. They might be the ones that get cancer. So, so don't kill yourself trying to be the one that is noticed by everybody. Don't be overly righteous. And this is this idea of self-righteousness, this, this idea of like, I want to be good. I want to check all the boxes to make sure that I've hedged my bets as much as I can so that everybody knows that I'm this good person and so that even if something bad does happen to me, everybody's going to commiserate with me because, oh, why them? And so we want to hedge our bets. We want to check our boxes. This is the person who, who, who feels a real strong sense of control, who really likes to follow the rules because they feel better about life if they followed all the rules. They feel entitled to God's blessings. They feel entitled to everybody else's respect. This is the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. It's actually the wrong name for that story. That story, which we know is the prodigal son, is actually more aptly named the father who had two sons. Because while the, the story focuses on the prodigal who takes his father's inheritance, blows it, and runs out and, and you know, spends it all on, on you know, Vegas-style pleasure, and then ends up broke and in a pit longing to come back home. That's the one we talk about. And that story, the climax does happen whenever that, that, that prodigal comes back home. And the father, instead of standing there judgmental and waiting for his speech that he's been practicing and, and, and you know, telling you, you're darn right, you owe me this, and yeah, we've got to start out. Like, instead of that, he's met with a father who's been longing for him to come back home. He's met with a father who receives him with not just like a, a tolerance or, or maybe I'll let you back in if you earn it, but instead he meets a father who's, who's been waiting, who's been longing, and runs out to meet him, who undignifies himself to go and meet him and, and wrap him in new clothes and give him a restoration back into the family. And that's what we focus on. But in the background, what's happening is there's an older brother who never left. There's an older brother who has been doing all the things. He's been checking all the boxes. He's been there with the father the whole time. And little brother already got his inheritance. And so now for little brother to come back in means he gets restored to another chunk of inheritance. So what's happening to little brother or older brother's inheritance? It's getting halved again. 
or reduced again. It wasn't fully half, but it's getting reduced again. And he's starting to feel uh, righteous indignation toward this. Like, how could this be? Like, I, and, and, he, and you see that and the father throws a party for the son who's, who was once lost and has come back home. And where's the older brother in the middle of the party? He's outside, angry, sulking, refusing to come in. And in this story, Jesus is talking to religious people. Realize that. The audience is actually not a bunch of prodigals. The audience is a bunch of older brothers. A bunch of religious people who think that they've earned God's favor by, be, by being good. They think they're entitled to, to the grace of God, to the reward of God, to the blessing of God because of how they live their life. They never left. And, and this is what he says. Like, I've been here the whole time. And, 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 you know, there's no fatted calf killed for me. There's no party thrown for me. Like, he, he's angry. And, and the father goes to him. The father could just say, you know what? You don't get it. I'm done with you. But instead, he goes to him too, and he implores him to come back into the, to the celebration because he says, listen, your brother who was lost, he's back again. Like, we're celebrating that. But he's so caught up in his own stuff that he doesn't get it. And this is what Solomon is warning against. Don't be so righteous that you think you're entitled to God's blessing. That doesn't mean we, we stop pursuing holiness and righteousness. But what it means is when we're actually pursuing holiness, that will lead to humility. That will lead to a greater awareness of our sin. This is why Solomon follows it up at the end. He says, the person who fears God will, will avoid these extremes. Because a person who's really pursuing Jesus will become more righteous. Meaning they have sinned less and they, uh, sin less and they are more like Jesus. They will. But at the same time, they will become more humble. They will become more meek. They will become less proud. They will, they will see themselves not as somebody who should be respected and, and is entitled to God's favor, but rather they, they, the more they realize about Jesus, the more they'll realize they don't deserve to be in the presence of Jesus, and they themselves will be like the Apostle Paul, who we could say is like team captain of the varsity of Christians, and he calls himself what? The chief among sinners. How could somebody who's planning churches, who's the greatest modern mission, like missionary that the world's ever known, planting more churches, like how could he say he's the chief among sinners? It's because the closer he gets to Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize we don't belong near Jesus. Right? I've heard this illustration before, and I couldn't find it decided or even to get the, the words uh, better, but, but it's this idea of that when you come into a dark room that maybe hasn't been tended to in a while, and you have a light, maybe it's a light on your phone, um, and, and you, you turn the flashlight on your phone and you start to look around and immediately you can tell, like it looks like a pretty, you know, it looks like it's been taken care of, right? It looks like it's a pretty clean room. And, and so you, you go to sit down and, and, and then later somebody comes in and they find a lamp and they turn it on and as that lamp comes on, you go, okay, well, it's not as clean as I thought. I mean, I see some like, I see a cobweb up in the corner there. I, you know, like maybe somebody ought to wash their baseboards, that kind of thing, but like it's still a pretty clean room. And then, and then somebody comes in and actually find the light switch is on the other side and, and they turn a the light on and all of a sudden all these uh, you know, lights come on and, and you can see and you're like, oh man, it's not quite as clean as I thought. There, there's actually some more work to do. I need to go get my, my dust rag. I need, to, like, I need to take care of some of this stuff. It's actually kind of filthy. I see some fingerprints. I see some spills in the carpet. I see some things that I couldn't see. And then somebody maybe brings in a spotlight to start filming something or whatever. The, the brighter the light gets, the more the dirt you can see, the more the, the filth becomes evident. Because, and, and as we move closer to Jesus, we don't become more and more proud of who we are. We become more and more impressed with who he is. And we realize, man, I don't, I don't have any business being here. 
And the closer I get to him, the more humble I am because I'm more overwhelmed that he's allowed me in his presence at all. Does that make some sense? And so a pursuit of righteousness won't lead to somebody thinking that they are entitled and being overly righteous. This won't be the people who are announcing to everybody how righteous they are. Nobody likes those people, right? Or even the people who are just overly Christian and overly weird and everything's about a spiritual deal. Like, I, I heard one pastor tell a story about, like, he went into uh, his college dorm to pray for a guy, and the guy was like, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, this is a Holy Spirit gun. I'm making sure you're full. You're full. And he's like shooting him with a, he's like, dude, stop. It'd be weird, you know? Like, we don't want to be unnecessarily weird. Now, now listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't look different than the world. Some people take a church like ours who is, who is you know, we're, we're clear on, on Christian liberty and we don't condemn some of the things that a lot of churches have. And, you know, we say it's okay to, to drink alcohol as long as you're not getting drunk. And we, we say it's okay to dance more than three dances at your wedding and those sorts of things. And they'll take that and, and they use it as an abuse and they twist it and say, you know what, come to my church. We won't call you out for anything. You know, come to my church and, you know, like we, we're, we're not about, we don't have rules. We don't care, like that kind of thing. And that's an abuse of grace. It's not what is being taught. That's not what it would have said, right? It, it's not this idea of, of licentiousness, right? But, but it is this idea of pursuing holiness. So we don't want to be the people who are, who are just so culturally weird and strange, unnecessarily, that the world can't relate to us. But we also don't want to relate so much with the world that they can't see any difference in us. Do you understand? Jesus told us we're going to be in the world but not of the world. That we're actually called out, set apart, right? The called out ones, like this idea of being sanctified. So we live in the world and we don't need to look different in the, in the obvious and strange ways, but we should look different in the deep and character and moral ways. But he says don't. Avoid these extremes is what Solomon is saying. Don't pursue righteousness thinking that by that you're going to get some reward. That's actually evaluating yourself based off of other people and not the Lord. Right? And he actually tells us the other side. Don't, don't be an idiot either. Right? So some of y'all need to repent of, of being too religious, being too overly righteous, like thinking that you know you got to bring, you know, some kind of spiritual conversation into everything. You're like, all right, man, I just told you it was a nice shirt. And now you're on some, you know, sermon about how the Lord's blessed you and allowed you to go to Dillard's and buy this shirt. And it was 40% off and you just hit your knees and prayed. And you think, and you like, all right, man, I just told you it's a nice shirt. Like, I, you know, don't be weird, right? Like we want to have a ministry of normal. Like we want to not be weird people unnecessarily. We want to be weird in the sense of like, oh, you're not having sex outside of marriage. Oh, why is that? Oh, it's because God has something better for me. Oh, you're only gonna, you're going to stop at two drinks and not get plastered? Why is that? Because the Lord tells me, you know, like it's better to not give myself over to something. Oh, you know, like you, you're actually going to be, you know, devout in your marriage and not check out other, you know, men or women. Like that's the sort of stuff we want to be weird about. Not just random culture stuff. So he says, don't, don't do that. But also, don't be the idiot. Don't be on the other side, right? So he says, don't kill yourself. Don't destroy yourself trying to be the best person in all the categories. It won't, it, it's actually not how God is going to, to measure you. But at the same time, don't be overly wicked. Don't be a fool, right? So some people live their Christianity in such a way, and this is what I was getting at earlier, where we take grace and we say, okay, well, he's not, you know, God forgives sin, and I'm not in a legalistic church, so how far can I go? 
How much can I do and still get to heaven? How much sin can I entertain and still get to heaven? How far can I go without God being angry at me or my church calling me out? How far can I go? And we, we want to we we get as close to the line as we can. Listen, if that's you, you're, you're, you're not showing a heart that's in submission to the Lord. You're showing a heart that's trying to do a religious dance and make sure that you are checking the right boxes and you've not failed the course, right? That, that, that's a different posture. It says, and it says it's dangerous. Yes, the, like he says, why should you die before your time? Listen, God's sovereign, but if you're an idiot, you could still die. God is sovereign, but if you drink and drive, don't be surprised when you die. God is sovereign, but if you, you know, gamble all your money away, it's a bad, like, you're not going to blame the sovereignty of God for that, right? Like, no, you're an idiot. Like, so, so don't be an idiot. Don't, don't, don't go so far as, as you're making a mess out of your life and nobody knows why. No, we all know why. Like, don't, don't go there either. So avoid these extremes. And this is what he says. The man who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult language, but what he's saying is the man who actually is fearing God won't go to either of those extremes. Will actually live a life of humility and with, with deep character chasing after the Lord. Okay, so now he, he's going to get it. This is kind of what I was calling the whack-a-mole section in verse 19 down to 24. This is where he's going to, I think, begin to talk about, okay, what, how do we keep fleshing that out? How do we stay in this posture of not, you know, not being pulled in to those extremes? And he's going to talk about motive. He's going to talk about what, not just what not to do, but what leads us to do what we shouldn't do. He's going to look deep into what leads us off track. Jesus has said the path is narrow, right? The path is narrow that leads to, to, to salvation and to righteousness. The path is wide that leads to destruction. So if we're going to stay on the narrow path, how do we do that? And he wants to look deep at, at not just what we shouldn't do, but what actually leads us to want to do what we shouldn't do. And so part of that is how we view people, how we view ourselves, how we view our value, how we view our identity. This is a theme. I know you've heard it from us before, but he's going to get real practical on these aspects. And first thing he says, verse 19, he says, listen, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. What's he saying? He's saying when, when there's 10 rulers gathered in a city, when there's people who are gathered in a, you know, this is a council of whatever, I, I don't know what kind of, you know, uh, um, Meeting has been called, but when there's 10 rulers in the city, everybody is in awe of all the power that's gathered there. There's the security forces, there's, right, the president's got his, uh, you know, his team of, of security there. Uh, the other prime ministers are from all this world. Like, you see all the security, you see all this power, all this strength on display, 10 leaders gathered in a city. And what Solomon says, yeah, they may seem important, they may seem powerful, and they may seem really safe and secure to the world. But I'm here to tell you that a humble man with wisdom has better protection than those dudes. What does he mean? He says, listen, those guys, the, like, you know, the, um, their agency workers, their security teams can protect them from certain threats. And they are safe in some ways. But the reality is the big issues of life, the diagnosis, the ups and downs, the losses, the security teams can't prevent that from getting to them. And so the man who's actually living a humble life, full of wisdom, wisdom starts with what? A fear of the Lord. The man who's fearing the Lord and serving him is safer than the ten men gathered in a city 
who are powerful and are our leaders, right? So he's saying, listen, don't, don't be fooled by this idea that you need to achieve this level of status, achieve this level, level of influence in order to really be secure in your life. No matter what you have, no matter what your income is, no matter what your house looks like, no matter what, you know, what your life is right now, the most important thing that you can value. He said earlier, uh, last week's passage, the most valuable inheritance is what is wisdom. That, that we would be a people who hold the truths of the gospel in a, in a closed hand, that that will protect us from the wind and the waves that will come into this, into this life. So having true wisdom protects you from the actual ups and downs of life. Right? And, and here's the other thing. You think about that person who's in power, and they feel safe, they feel secure, they feel strong because they're in power. Well, what's their greatest fear? Losing that power. Right? You thought about this when you voted a couple weeks ago? Right? When you get in this position of power, and that's what your identity is in, that's where you feel safe and secure, your greatest fear becomes losing that power. So now you start serving that idol of power. You start living your life based off those values so that I don't lose this position, so I don't lose this power. And, and that's actually not secure at all. Those are the people who can't sleep. Those are the people who get ulcers. Those are the people who are miserable. So he's saying, hey, wisdom is actually far more valuable than the power that, uh, you know, influence and positions of rulers and, and those sorts of things can gather. Uh, verse 20, um, <clears throat> he goes on talking about this idea of how we see one another in fearing man. He says, uh, here's the deal, guys, the reality is surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So here's where I, I want you to, this is so relevant to us today. So much of your struggle, so much of your identity and where you put yourself is based off what you see from other people and the image that they put out on Facebook or Instagram or whatever all the things are that people put those curated images of their life out on, right? Or what their outside of their house looks like, right? You ever, you ever go over to somebody that you just, man, you just thought, man, they got it all together. I, we were having this conversation the other day. There's this family not from here. It's like, man, everybody just thinks, they just have this image, man. They got money, they, they're powerful people. And somebody's like, yeah, I went in their house one time and it was a mess and it made them feel so good about myself. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I do. I get it. Like, you know, on the outside, it looks all clean. It looks all good. It's all put together. And you get in there like, oh, they're humans. That's cool, right? And here's what he's saying. is like, listen, there's not anybody who's doing all these good things that actually never sin. There's no marriage that actually never fights. There's no home that's never, that's, that's always perfect. There's no kids who don't disobey. It doesn't matter what, like, you know, what image have been put out there. There's nobody who's that good. There's nobody who never sins. So don't let yourself get crushed into this, like, depression and this pursuit of some, you know, image in competition with whoever else, right? Like, he's, he's saying, listen, they've got their junk too. Just be honest. Like, surely, he says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's theological implications to this. We've already, we already talked about it, but Romans 3 says, like, listen, there's nobody who's good, nobody who seeks the Lord. What does that mean? Here's where, like I said earlier, we're comparing the wrong, we've got the wrong measurement. When we're measuring ourselves against other people, we can achieve here, achieve there, and we understand what we deserve. That measurement just doesn't matter at all. The only measurement that matters is us before a holy God. And in that sense, all of humanity has failed. Romans says, 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody who's good. There's nobody who seeks God. That's the only measurement that matters. Us before God. And when we realize that, now we have a different posture and a different perspective. Now we're not just angry when we don't get what we deserve. We're grateful that we got anything because we don't deserve it all, right? Like it, it changes and transforms our perspective on life when we realize, oh, before God, none of us are without sin. So that informs our values. And then it gets really practical. He says, stop comparing yourself. Stop believing the lie. My wife was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and she was like, I just want to call BS on some of these vacation posts. <laughs> we wasn't talking about any of y'all, I don't think. But she's like, it's just, I know y'all, I know your family's not that perfect, right? She's like, I just want to, I just want to just call BS. Uh, and I get it. It's like, ah, oh, you know, and, and that's, we put these images out that are, you know, just curated highlights of the best moments in our life. I dare somebody to post their messy house or a video of their kid's temper tantrum, Right? So he says, don't, don't let yourself be crushed by that. There's nobody who's that good. There's nobody who's perfect. They got their junk too. It goes on. Verse 21, he says, don't take to heart all the things that people say. Church, don't take to heart all the things that people say. Okay? Don't care about gossip. Don't care about what everybody's saying. Don't lean in. Don't try to tune your ear in. All the things that people say. Why? Why? He goes, because you might hear somebody talking bad about you. If you're the person that likes all the gossip and likes to keep in on all the stuff, guess what? You might stumble in the wrong conversation or somebody might hit the wrong text thread and send something about you. And now what you've used to build yourself up by looking down at everybody else and talking about everybody else's nonsense, what you used to build you up is all of a sudden going to crush you. This is not a good way to build yourself up. By tearing down other people? Stop. Don't do that. And, and, he, and he just sobers us up in verse 22. He goes, listen, you know, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So if you do hear somebody talking about you, like, newsflash, you've been talking about other people before. So don't give it any more weight than it deserves. Like, Don't, don't evaluate yourself that way. Don't evaluate others that way. You've got to keep going. Verse 23, he says, All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I will be wise. Right? And this is a guy who God granted wisdom beyond anybody else. But he says, but it was actually far from me. Okay? This is him getting back to this search for life. Like, what, what, makes the, what makes this work? What's the equation? A plus B equals C. What, what is A? What is B that's going to get me the life that I want? Right? And he says, it's, it's far from me. That which has been far off is deep, and it's very deep. Who can find it out? This is a man who had all the means and all the resources and more wisdom than us. And he says, it was still beyond me to really grasp the meaning of life, to grasp the equation that would lead to fulfillment. So here's what he says. I, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. Right? So again, he's trying to figure out this equation. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Right? So what leads to this chaos? What leads to madness? Maybe it's that like, I've, I've tried to do the good thing. Now maybe look at what, what leads us to the bad things. What, what, what is that? And he says, and here's what I found. Here's one of the worst things I found. He says something more bitter than death. Okay, so we started out the conversation talking about, man, it really bothers me when righteous people die and evil people keep on living. 
But now he's going to say, here's something even worse than death. Here's worse, something worse and more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. What, what is he talking about? Listen, I, it's kind of funny to read the commentaries and watch them run away from this verse. They're like, oh, I don't want to touch this. Like, women aren't bad. I don't think that's what he meant. And it's not. I, 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 I'm not 100% sure what he's doing here, but here's what I think in the context. Here's what I think he's saying in the context. He's like, this, again, this is wisdom literature. If you read the Proverbs, uh, they personify, and the Solomon doing the same thing, they'll personify wisdom as the lady wisdom, and they'll personify folly or foolishness as, as, as this person, this foolishness, this lady um, debauchery, right? And, and so I, I think there's some level of that, but I think there's also a personal reflection here. Because if you know Solomon, uh, Solomon was a man whose heart, like his, start, his life starts out amazing, and he's blessed immensely by the Lord. And he's warned by the Lord not to let his heart be taken astray by what? Born women. It's not, it's not about their ethnicity. It's about their worship. It's about their religion. He says, don't, don't give your heart over to foreign women. They will destroy you. And that, that's what happened. If you know Solomon's story, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Concubines are, well, we got kids in here, but... Um, they're, they're girlfriends, right? This is, this is a guy who has more women at his disposal than, than we could even fathom. And I think he's saying, like, one of the worst things that can happen in life is not a righteous man dying too soon, but it's when good people get tangled up in sexual sin. That the devastation that is brought to individuals' hearts and to families whenever sexual sin is brought in, is, he says, more bitter than death. It's painful. It's hard. Some of you know all too well what I'm talking about. So if we're living our life thinking, okay, if I'm this good, I'll get these things. And, I, and I'll be better than those people because they're not doing these things. Listen, after a while, we realize that doesn't work. And if we don't replace that mindset with a fear of the Lord and pursuing him and treasuring him, what we'll start to do is we'll start to move toward the wickedness. We'll start to say, well, if, if being righteous and being good isn't working, it's not fulfilling me the way that I want, maybe I, need, maybe I do deserve some indulgence. When your heart is not content in your marriage, when your heart is not content with the Lord, and then you see a trap that Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 talks about, Right from, from adultery, you see this trap, you see the, the, the ads that come across your you know, um, social media or uh, you know, an image from a show or an actual woman at work or a man at work that starts showing you attention. Now all of a sudden, that has an appeal that it shouldn't have. And, and, and that is what is, is he's describing as these snares and these fetters that, that are like a net that capture us up. And, and it's, he says it's devastating, it's, it's awful. It's all related. If we're, if we're trying to get our value out of life and our purpose out of life by being better than other people, that's not going to work, and it's going to lead us to want to indulge. And he says, that here's, here's who escapes her. Here's who escapes that kind of trap and avoids that kind of devastation in their life. He who, what, pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. The person who has their eyes on other people will be vulnerable to these sorts of devastating, sinful traps. The person who has their eyes on the Lord can escape these, these temptations. Verse 27. 
Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, right? Putting, putting this together, adding, collecting all of his data, trying to make sense out of this world to find the scheme of things, he says, which my soul has sought repeatedly. This is not like, this is not like an afternoon's task for him. This has been a, a lifelong pursuit of what is the meaning of life? How do I put this together? What's the equation? How do I make this work? He says, I've, I've sought this repeatedly, but I have not found. And he says this, uh, another verse that the commentator scattered from, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I haven't found. What's he saying? It sounds like he's saying, I found a, I found a good man, but not any good women, right? I don't, there's actually no label of good there. What, this idea that this, this, the word found there actually, I think, is more closely translated to figure out or understand. Okay, so as he's trying to understand people and understand life and why people do what they do and how do you put this all together, he, I think he's just saying, like, simply, he's made a mess of the way he's approached women. He sees them as objects. He sees them as pieces of meat, frankly. And that's what our world has done to many of our men is taught our men to see women as objects to be used rather than humans to be valued and loved and pursued and cared for and protected. So I think he's saying, man, I've made a mess out of the way I've, made, I've viewed women. I, and, I don't under, and I think he's also saying, I don't understand women. And you men, it's okay to say, yeah, amen, dude. I don't get it either, right? So I think he's simply saying, like, there's a couple guys that I understand. They're righteous. They're good people. Like, I get it. I'm not, he's not found any woman that he's like, I get it. But, but listen, that's not the Bible saying there's no good women. There's plenty of women that the Bible talks about in a positive manner. Solomon's just making a point here that, listen, there's nobody who's actually good. There's, there's nobody that, that, that has this figured out, that has earned this idea of life. Verse 29, see, this alone is what I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Here's what he gets to. Here's the sum of it all. He goes, here's what I've realized. We were made good because that was God's work. After that, we've all messed it up. We've all messed it up. We've devised many schemes, he says. So we were made good, but we've devised many schemes and we've gotten far from the Lord. So, if you've come hoping to find some self-help of how you avoid doing bad things in your life so that bad things happen to you, like, that's not the message of Christianity. That's not the message of, of the Bible here. The message is, God made you good. Made us good. We messed it up with our sin. We messed it up with our devices. We messed it up with our schemes, trying to earn our own righteousness, our favor before the Lord. That's where we've made a mess of things. And so the only place we can turn to, it's not going to be some other mentor, some man, some woman, some relationship, some salary, whatever. The only place we could turn to, Ecclesiastes consistently is bringing us back to this. The only place we can turn to is back to God. And the good news is we, we were made good. We've made things bad, but Jesus came to take our bad, right, to pay the penalty, pay the cost, and to give us his good, to be restored back into his image. We were made in his image, and, and we messed it up with our sin. He comes to make a way so that the Holy Spirit can come in and dwell us, and we can be changed, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from one degree of glory to another. As we behold Jesus, we are transformed back into the image that we're supposed to be. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what we get to cling to. That's what we get to run toward. It's not extremes of trying to be the most righteous person or trying to get as much out, uh, you know, we can out of, you know, the pleasure of this world without, you know, 
being busted or without losing our salvation. No, it's to pursue Jesus with all that we got and let him, him make us back into what we were made to be, which is his image bearers, his children. So that's the, the offer of salvation. Stop trying. Stop trying to be good. Stop trying to make your life okay and instead come and give it to Jesus and let him transform it by transforming you. Let's pray. God, help us to, to rightly hold your word in our hearts and, and to let it seep down into the deep places and our motivations and how we view people and how we view you and, and, what, and how we approach you and how we approach other people and life. Lord, help. May your spirit just come and, 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 and sink deep into our hearts and expose the darkness that is there, expose our motivations. And, and, and like your, your word says about itself, that it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes bone from marrow, and it, and it lays us open. I pray that it would do that this morning. And as we respond, that we would uh, sense your presence of, of a holy God and yet a graceful God, a God who's made a way for us sinners to come into your righteous presence. And may that overwhelm us and move us into a pursuit of treasuring you and moving towards you. May that be applied all across the room for the, for the person who's never trusted in you, has never set foot in a church before. May they, may they know that they can, they can come and receive you today based off what Jesus has done. For the person who has uh, never known life without you, saved as a kid and lived their whole life, may, may we be overwhelmed in a fresh way by your presence, by your holiness and your grace, your blood poured out for us. May we not take the gospel for granted. In Jesus' name we pray.